Hello and welcome to Steve Automotive's Cars of the Decade. We're into the 1970s where fashion was awful, hair was awful, some cars were okay. I'm Sean Smith and I'm joined by Christopher Strickland. Hello. Sam Green. Hello. James Montgomery. Hello. And someone who somewhat still lives in the 70s, Alistair Walker. Greetings, humanoids. That's a good point. We've now got an actual reference to the 70s. I mean, too. Ponytails a lot. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so this is like the homecoming then, isn't it, Al? I'd put myself more in the 1980s than I would the 70s. <laughs> well, well, I mean, the 70s and the 80s. Like you, you, can, you can't get to the 80s without the 70s. There you go. Al, Al, you're, like, you're like the first of January 1980. <laughs> <laughs> also, Al, I'm pretty certain you wear trench coats and beige, so they're 70s colours as well. What's wrong with beige trousers? Well, that and other questions will be brought, answered throughout this podcast. Uh, still, because of the decades, we're into the 1970s race cars, so where to start? Let's go with the most, uh, probably the slowest of the, of the lot, which is Cree. Hey, hang on, the 510 Datsun Trans Am is probably not the slowest of the lot, is it? No, it probably isn't, but we're going to start with it anyway, because it's the first one I've got. <laughs> start the clock! What, sorry? I think it probably is the slowest of our selection, considering uh... we've got... Like, looking at the other cars, to be fair. Two F1 cars, two Le Mans cars, and a Datsun. Yeah, right, for me, this is the slowest of the lot. Anyway, Chris, go I on. Mean, I mean, it has 150 horsepower, so maybe it is? The slowest of the lot? I don't know. Um, yeah, so my race car of the decade was one of the first Japanese imports into the Trans Am series that preempted the two, the, the quite famous two, no, it wasn't the 240, it was the, Christ, what was it? The 300ZX Trans Am car. But, so yeah, my car of the decade is the Datsun 510 Trans Am. That I believe was only one of one, um, for what I remember. Uh, so yeah, it was. The Datsun 510 was first introduced in 1967. That's the car. The car. Okay. Not the race car. The race car was taken to America in the 70s and converted into a trans to the Trans Am 2.5 series by BRE. For those who don't know what a Trans Am is, uh, do you want to explain what Trans Am actually is, Cree, quickly? I wish I could, if I'm honest. Al, I'm take not. over. <laughs> it was a trans-American production-based racing series, so I can't remember the rules specifically in the 70s, but I know in its earlier years it generally had two classes, which was over two litres in capacity, so you had all the big American muscle cars, and then you had under two litres, which tended to be road racing cars that had come from Europe so things like Alfa Romeo's Triumphs things like that I don't know if, uh, actually they might well because I think Triumph did have sales in the US from my memory anyway so, yeah my exact knowledge of Trans Am is not the best it's, it's still it's, be, it's better than Creed that's what Matt Matt matters Creed back that's to you with the Datsun yeah. Uh, yeah so the car was brought over to America um, by Katayama Katayama um, by Yutaka Katayama yep. um, and it was given to and he was convinced to give it to Peter Brock's Racing Enterprises um, which also helped develop Shelby's Cobras, Daytona Cobras and also with Toyota linking back to my previous race car of the decade of the 2000 GT 
um, was turned into the five. I turned the standard five ten into a five ten Trans Am, um, in which it raced in the Trans Am two point five series uh, under the number of or under BRE five ten four and number forty six. Um, I don't think it did particularly well, to be honest. Um, but it was given some factory backing with factory parts from Nissan, so it was quite nice of Nissan to to give them a helping hand. I thought. You say don't think it did particularly well according to what well, i can really find it, it was the chance. national champion <laughs> yeah. for the under two and a half liter category in 1971 and 1972 because then it was cancelled that series was cancelled uh so basically it killed the series is what it did so i'll take that well, no the series still existed no, no, no. they just changed the category no, structure no 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 it killed the series <laughs> it did no, what, um, the, the only time it's not one. run was but 2007 and 2008 since 1966. Nissan have a theme of making cars which end up massively changing rule sets or cancelling series. But in it, just don't mention their modern. No. Modern ones. Just forget them ones. Um, uh, one thing I like about this car, Cree, is that uh, front brakes, discs, rear brakes, drums. Well, yeah, as I say, it's based off the. You know the production thing. I know, I know. I just like it. I just, I, it's, it's an interesting with modern eyes. It's a very interesting setup. And, you know, it's got a one point eight, one point eight liter carbureted engine, which I think is fantastic. One hundred fifty brake horsepower, rear wheel drive, Pinotel tires. You know, it's swap wheel based. You know, it's, it has all the hallmarks of a fantastic race car, which is why it won twice. Apparently. Come at me! Like power at me. Well, you didn't. You, you, you just said you you started with it's not not very successful until Al actually gave you the the, the <laughs> yeah, ammunition. Exactly. I, you know, I'm, I'm down. You know, I'm, I'm playing down my. You know, I'm playing down this car for, I, for the first you know, time ever. Most people. That's all I'm saying. Fair enough. I mean, it seems a bit contradictory trying to make a, a car of the decade when you're playing it down though. Denied. Yeah. Next car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will add it. Also, BRE and the Datsun 510 took the Teams and Cars Championship in 1972. <laughs> oh, that actually fucking did really well. It didn't even like yes. analyze and blame it down anymore. That's a fucking fantastic result. Come well, at me. Go, right. 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 These things do happen occasionally in multi-class series. I know it's happened in some British club championships where... If, say, a car in the under two and a half litre category dominates and the over two and a half litre category is quite close, the car in the under two and a half litre category might win the overall championship. Isn't that a similar thing to what happened in the BTCC back in the 70s and 80s? I do believe yeah. so, yes. Because I believe they awarded the points independently per class. Yeah. So basically, yeah, if I mean... you could find a really undersubscribed class or basically turn up in what was nearly a club class with a works car, you were going to win the championship. Which I think happened yeah, to Vauxhall with the Astra. Anyway, that's besides that's the point. My apologies. Minis that won the British Saloon Car Championship as well. That's why the only reason the Mini won it was because they scored it the same. Like, if you could win the two-litre class, you got the same points as if you won the over two-litre class. So you could be three laps down on the Mustang that won. But because you won your class, you get the same points. That's ridiculous. In the BTCC deal, yeah, this is well in the late 80s. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what, what we were we, just uh, saying. Well, I don't know about, oh, whoops, yeah, I misheard that British bit. Saloon car, that was the British Saloon Car Championship before it changed its name. Right, okay, that makes more sense. Uh, my bad. Ignore that. Edit that out, Sean. No. 
could stay <laughs> no absolutely not it's staying in no I think, <laughs> this, I, think, I think this is a cool car Corey. well it is I think it's a cool car I mean as I say it's, it it's you know it, 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 it harks back to you know Nissan's racing albeit Nissan didn't necessarily um, back it on a factory stage it just shows that the Nissan cars previous to when Nissan went full blown mad with its 300ZX and all this other well, and the Skylines um, racing, well, the Skylines you know all of them it's the, the cars do come from a racing pedigree hmm. um, and they did build really good cars that could be turned into race cars um, and for me it's the car of the decade just because of its domination within its championship that I didn't know about cool <laughs> Um, I, just, I just really like the car. No, it's a cool car. Uh, yeah, let's nice let's stick with iconic livery as well, isn't it? Oh, it's got an awesome livery. Guys, have you also seen the picture of it on uh, the link that uh, supercars.net, the one that Cree uh, gave to us? What about it? Look on the side of it, so it says number 46, and then beside it, where it says Datsun, it says B-R-E before it. So it's essentially Chris's namesake. Bree Datsun. No, because <laughs> that's to do with cheese, and I don't want anything to do with cheese. That's French well. cheese, that. Brie. And what? It's French cheese as well. Oh, exactly. Really? Perfect. That's why. That's why Monty Monty's uh, noticed it all. Oh, oui, oui. Pour les anglais. Uh, oui, oui. Uh, let's uh, let's stick with America for the next car. Uh, Al, you have the best car in Gran Turismo 4. Yes. So going from the Trans Am series to the Can Am series, so the Canadian American Challenge Cup. And I've picked a car from 1970, which probably quite a few people will recognise the name of, which is the Chaparral 2J. Awesome oh car. my god, yes. There we Vacuum go. Cleaner mobile. Yeah, <laughs> so the car was powered by a 7.6 litre V8 engine, producing 680 brake horsepower. That's mad. It did also have another engine in it, which... I believe, from my recollection, was a small snowmobile engine. Was that just for the turbine? Yeah, so said small snowmobile engine powered a pair of fans on the back of the car. This was the car that kind of took ground effect to its ultimate end point, I think, was instead of trying to generate a low-pressure area under the car via clever aerodynamic tricks, they just decided they were going to suck all the air out from under it. <laughs> <laughs> And they made the thing absolutely stick to the circuit. Yep. I mean, I will say, it's not the prettiest car on it. I think it looks good. Yeah, I think it's quite cool because of what it is. Yeah, it's not it, a pretty car by any stretch, but it's quite clever, so it's quite yeah, cool. Yeah, it's a very clever car. It uses Lexan skirts down to the ground to help maintain that low-pressure area and give it essentially just immense cornering speed. Wasn't very popular with other teams and drivers. <laughs> well, because it used just to because the... it had a, basically a Gatling gun on the back of it. Essentially, yes, there were complaints from other teams and drivers that. Bear in mind, this was the 1970s or 1970s specifically, so racetracks weren't really, I think, as well kept as they are in the modern era. And there are apparently complaints from other teams. I think notably McLaren, who won the championship in 1970, that. If you followed the thing, it would basically just fire stones at you <laughs> at high speed. And bear in mind, this isn't just like... You get a normal downforce car, it's able to throw things out quite a lot. You see from the rooster tails on, say, F1 cars in the rain. This one's actually actively propelling stuff out of the back. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, not a pleasant car to be behind. But well, Just drive slower. 
Yeah, or overtake it. Yeah. Yeah, this is yeah. true. But either way, an absolutely incredible piece of technology and a car that really showed Can-Am's very out there take on motorsport regulations. I mean, the thing had about 830 bhp per tonne mm. and an aerodynamic system that was pretty much remains banned to mm. this day. The only other time we've ever seen it in competition, I believe, was the Brabham fan car in the 1980s in F1, and that was banned after one race, was it? Yeah, I think it, it was, was actually Sweden. 78. It was 78, but yes, you're correct. Was it? Okay, yeah. so again... So you 70s. could have used that for the car of the decade, this? So. No, but this thing's better. Yeah, I agree. This, this yeah, one this thing also did memorable. it eight years earlier. Exactly. I've, I've always loved the rear wing on this car. Just it's basically just one massive gurney flap all the way across the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, which was actually quite common of the cars of the time. To be fair, it was. It was quite common in Can-Am to uh, just have a big gurney flap on the back of the car and then just take it off for faster circuits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. You could almost. Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say it wouldn't make any difference because most of the downforce comes from underneath it and the big fan anyway. So it's just exactly. yeah, you're right. It's just it, it just sucked you. It was, yeah, that was purely what it was for stability. You could almost argue though that any Cam Am Cam Am car from that era was revolutionary because they were all doing different tricks, weren't they? McLaren with their slanty trumpets um, engines, uh, Penske were acid dipping their chassis to remove uh, weight off them. Every single manufacturer involved in that series. Oh, it's had something so so revolutionary. It was just such a yeah. a varied field, wasn't it? And this is just yeah, a brilliant sort of example of thinking outside the box uh, with the Chapel Two J. If I can potentially give an honourable mention, I know we don't normally do these, although Unless I'm going to allow myself because <laughs> Monty normally picks five cars. <laughs> is yeah. Porsche three years later came out with a turbocharged version of the nine one seven, which was the nine one seven thirty. Yes. which I believe is the most powerful race car ever to hit the track. How powerful was it? Mm. Yeah, I think it was. 1,500 per horsepower. That's right. That's, yeah. Oh, that was incredible. Well, that didn't was. the equivalent BMW engine, was it in the 90s? Oh, sorry, not the 90s. Was it the 80s that BMW put in the back of a Brabham? Did that have something close in qualifying trim? Have something close to fifteen hundred brake horsepower? Yeah, so that that had about fifteen hundred as well. Um, I think the difference was this car was actually doing it in race trim, whereas that was in qualifying trim because they had much much larger engines, didn't they? The the F one stuff was one and a half liters, whereas this was four liters, I think maybe uh, five and a half actually. Yeah, so reduced to the early seventies five and a half liter Le Mans rules. There we go. And then they basically just messed around with it for Can Am. Mm. So this was producing in excess of a thousand horsepower in race trim, whereas the F1 cars were only doing that in quali. And then in the races, they were tuned down to about eight hundred horsepower again, either because things were going to detonate or because of all the fuel regulations that uh, they had put in as well. Whereas this thing was unlimited. I think this this was the car that um, Mark Donoghue was quoted in saying um, it will only ever have enough power. Sorry, a car will only ever have enough power when I'm still wheel spinning in fifth. And this comes pretty close to that. I was going to say, didn't did the, uh, the Nissan R92, I think it was, or 89, have, have that problem if you put it in first gear out of it's R&R? What's, what's, what's the corner after Indianapolis at Le Mans? 
yes, it is Arnaud. Yeah, if you put it into first gear by accident and then hit the throttle, it would basically tear the uh, the tires off the rims. Yeah, so, so there it. we go. I think my candidate for car of the decade, the Chaparral 2J, and an honourable mention to essentially just the insanity that was Can Am. Mm. Yeah, good choice. Um, very good choice as well. I, I approve of this. Um, let's go to my choice, shall we? Stick it with Le Mans. So, a couple of years after Chaparral came along with their boxy, boxy car, um, the Japanese decided to have a have. Yeah, they, they, that was a noise cree. What was that? That was just a that's just support for the Japanese having a crack at it. Oh right, <laughs> yeah, they came to Le Mans. Um, the Sigma MC74 is my car of the decade because not necessarily for what it did. But what it has generated since um, its its time, really. So the Sigma MC74 is a rotary engine. Yeah. It's the, using a what 2.292 litre uh, Mazda 12A two rotor engine, which is I think they also used it in their sports cars at the time. Um, only power. Is it based on Maybe. Is it based, I was going to say, is it based on a Matra? Because the chassis awfully looks like a Matra. Well, a lot of cars back then look pretty much the same, Chris. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it says Mazda on the front, so I'm going to say it's a, it's a Mazda. Anyway. I know, I fully admit it's probably whatever you think it is, yeah. but it awfully looks like a Matra. Okay, well, Sorry. whatever. Carry on. I will. Uh, this car is Japan. It was the first Japanese car to, I think, enter Le Mans, finish Le Mans, uh, and have a rotary engine, which obviously eventually with Mazda, what, nearly 20 years later, would eventually win, be the first Japanese uh, manufacturer to win, Le Mans. Yeah, it's just a shame that car was driven by Johnny Herbert, but we'll let go of <laughs> Just let it go, Chris. <laughs> no, I, no, you just, no. Uh, the Sigma MC74 um, raced in a grand total of three races, uh, two at Fuji, one at Le Mans. Um, it had sort of a derivative after Le Mans, but it was basically it only raced a few times. But it was it's, again, it's more the fact that it, the rotary engine technology, which it uh, what's the word, which it debuted had, at yeah, Le Mans, it I guess. Debuted, yeah, it's it's more the fact of what it, the groundwork it laid for its its future successes. The rotary come from a Mazda Cosmos. That's what I was about to say. It came from yeah the uh, their sports car at the time so it's not actually very powerful whatsoever um well, it's probably quite good for Le Mans because then it's going to last a long time if it's not pushing the limits of its engine well you say that but, it, but it was also quite unreliable it, <laughs> it, was, right? it was also quite unreliable so that, that didn't um uh, did it, right. no so, so so even though it didn't have the uh, the dodge viper problem of being not being not not being stressed enough it was more it was highly stressed and also um a bit difficult and a bit temperamental but then against the 70s reliability was actually a factor back then where did it finish uh last <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was gonna say it was actually classified as a dnf because it didn't so complete enough laps yeah but it did finish it did finish and everyone knows so actually, it's not, like not a 1970s Japan. bike <laughs> if, if, yeah. if, if that makes you happy i'll guess i will we'll go with that <laughs> um, it completed a grand total of 156 laps, which is it's not amazing. Um, no, that's not. I mean, it. I'm just looking through the car's results. It 
does appear that you said it had two races at Fuji at one at Le Mans. Yeah. So it's got a not classified at Le Mans. <laughs> yeah. It did not finish at Fuji in nineteen in the first part of nineteen seventy five, and then a started result unknown. For <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what what, what yeah. more? Could, like, I mean, obviously, it just dominated that race so much that they had to. Yeah, they 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 thought it it was a you know only halfway around. It was it was moving faster than light. That's that's what I think. I can confirm this is not true because it was a March 74S that won that race. Oh, yeah, but that's the official results. You know, it's the Illuminati trying to, like, cover up. Um, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. That's yeah. What, a, what a load of wankle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was good. I feel, for, I feel sorry for the driver because when you think about it, when it's going down North Sound Strait, because at that point you wouldn't have had the chicanes in, No. it's going to be screaming its tits off for like, for, <laughs> for like a whole minute. Yeah, this is why I would love to drive the 787B down the original Mulsanne straight, because imagine that's when that screamed even more Yeah, but that's, than that's, the 70s variant of the same it, engine. That's yeah, also I was going to say, Rosa. never would have driven down the original Mulsanne. No. When did the uh, chicanes come in? 89? No, it was either 90 or 91, and the Mazda won it in 91. I think it was 90. Oh, damn it. So whatever, wasn't it the year after? Was it Porsche? Was it a Porsche? A team that entered a Porsche that went to try and do 240 miles an hour. Mm, no, a that team. was a. It was the WM was Peugeot? Peugeot, and I yeah. can't remember the exact model name of the car, but it was definitely a WM Peugeot. Yeah, where they blocked off all the air ducts just to get the top speed. That's what they were cared about, just doing 240 miles an hour. They couldn't give a damn about where they were. Well, I don't think it was 200. Yeah, it was 400 kilometres an hour they were aiming oh, for. Which is oh, more okay. or less 240 mile an hour. So, if I may, fast. a funny footnote to that story, their promotional material after that stunt, they lied about the speed. and They <laughs> didn't round it up. They rounded it down. Why? Because I... Well, I think their official recorded top speed was saying about 407 kilometres an hour. Uh -huh. They rounded it down to 405 because they were powered by Peugeot. They were using it in the marketing of the Peugeot 405. <laughs> which oh, was new at the time. Sake. So they cut two kilometres an hour off to advertise the Peugeot 405. But they could have saved it for 20 years and then advertised the 407. The 407 might have then been good. I liked the 407. I like the 407, but that's irrelevant. Um, <laughs> back to Wankles. Um... Wankel engines obviously these days don't really exist much anymore. Uh, Mazda are really the only sort of pioneer who sort of do anything with the technology. Um, I just announced that they're going to make a ro uh, rotary engine as I, a Ranger I was just about to go into that. Um, I've seen no, an article, article recently about um, rotary sort of potentially being used in hydrogen fuel cells and stuff. Um, as nice as it would be, do we think we will ever see rotary back at Le Mans in any capacity? Never say never. Never say never. I mean, as a, as a, as a Ranger extender, it'd probably be quite good. Like, if you had a rotary engine as a generator, mm -hmm. it'd be pretty handy. Because they're more efficient. And it's running at its most efficient. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to say it's running at its most efficient point. Yeah, certainly as a hybrid electric vehicle. I can see it happening. I, uh... Yeah, as Monty said, never say never. We've seen stranger things happen. We have, we have. No, we've actually ha had the announcement of a works return of Ferrari. That's something <laughs> yeah. I expected to see happen. That's right. It only took him 50 years. So it's, it's fine. Uh, but yeah, so that's my choice. The Sigma MC74. Um, basically for being being Genesis. Who I don't like. But anyway. Um, 
now uh le mans france france own renault monty go hey. Yes, they do. And for me, my car of the decade, for the 70s, rather race car of the decade, is the Renault RS10. Yes, we're moving from Le Mans into Formula 1 here, guys. The Renault RS10 was the first ground effect car developed by Renault for Formula 1. It is the first turbocharged car to have ever won a Formula 1 race. Uh, and for me, it perfected what Lotus had done with ground effects with their Lotus 78 but was also the first successful example of what turbo engines could do and is really what kick-started the turbo craze when all the other manufacturers got involved with it in 1981 onwards. Um, because for the first couple of years, uh, Renault turned up to the Formula 1 franchise with their RS01. Um, it was known as the yellow teapot because it kept on smoking after about five, seven laps in a race. And well, it's French. Oh yeah, it was French, it's, it was unreliable. It's, it's the law to smoke in France. <laughs> True, yes, you're quite right. Um, and it was, there was potential there, but because it was so unreliable, everyone else was quite happy sticking around with their Cosworth DFEs, especially as the engine itself proved to be so much better uh, for the ground effects cars that everyone was getting obsessed with at the time. Then Renault were like, no, no, we, we must continue with this project. Uh, we do not give up. And uh, so they came up with the RS10. It was debuted halfway through the 1979 season. Um, for me, it sorted out all the problems of what the RS01 suffered. For a start, it was a ground effect car, so it could now corner as quickly as it could go down a straight. Um, there, there was originally with this car a, a horrendous turbo lag issue. Um, and I mean, these were like the first cars to have turbos on them. So nowadays we don't have this issue because we have like little electric motors keeping the turbo spooled up. But back then it was yeah. all purely mechanical. You either have, so, you either have, as you say, a, a hybrid or a two, a double, a two-stage turbo to get over the, those problems. Um, yeah, correct. Terrible. Yeah, and and so and, and so back then, you know, the the uh, turbo fan was dependent entirely on the exhaust gases. So if you were revving lowly, you had no turbo, and it was only once you got enough uh, revs in the engine, which meant more air going through the exhaust to spin the turbine of the fat uh, of the the turbo, um, that was when you were only getting the turbo itself. So Renault sorted that out by having a twin turbo solution: one turbo focusing on lower RPM, one for the higher RPM. Boom, just like that, turbo lag was resolved. Hooray! Hooray! Um, of course, the car was still horrendously unreliable, but it was very, very quick. It was renowned for being now on the front row, but it kept on blowing up halfway through the race. Then, on the French Grand Prix in 1979, the one which everyone forgets about who won it, because Gilles Villeneuve and René Arnoux were too busy battling and barging each other off the road and probably one of the best battles we've ever seen, in F1, arguably. Um, Jabouis, Jean-Pierre Jabouis, who was not only the driver, but he was an engineer for this car and all the previous Renault cars uh, before that as well, drove it to victory. Lights to flag, pole, and finished first. And that was kind of the first proof that turbocharged cars do have a future in Formula One. However, from there, not however, however, this is the only race in which that car had both its, um, both its cars finish. Yes, which was a big issue, um, and how the cars developed over the next few years improved this, but because they were so stubbornly French, they never ever won the Formula <laughs> 1 Championship. Those um, 
laurels went to BMW. They were the first ones uh, to get a turbocharged car to win an F1. Um, and then Honda and Tag, uh, Porsche and all that as well afterwards. So Renault never actually won Formula One with the technology that they had introduced. However, why I've picked this car is because this set the standard and proved to everyone that this was the way forward. And for for me, it was a fitting way to end the decade because the 70s was all about Cosworth DFVs in Formula One. Um, and um, essentially like kit cars, whereas it opened up the door into the 80s for more manufacturers to get involved and more engine suppliers to get involved. So it was as much about the engine as it was about the chassis. I was going to say, wasn't, isn't that the era that Bernie decided to take over as um, the team boss? Exactly, yeah. <clears throat> so, you, 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 as you rightly say, you've gone from men in a shed yeah. to a professional outfit within the space of about five years because of the, the technology development, as you say, with your, your Renault turbo, twin turbocharged engines to Absolutely. the point you were in the 80s of you know proper professional outfits with proper commercial deals. Exactly, and so for me, the, this car symbolises all of that because it shows that the technology is there and actually if you persevere, you can do far greater things than just accept, oh, I can have a Cosworth DFV and buy some things on a budget. You can make far, far greater cars with a bit of development. Um, and so for me, that is why the Renault RS10 is my car that shows that what can be done with the technology when you persevere long enough. Cool. I mean, we're going to get to... The next car, it's, and then we'll, like, we'll see the differences between the early and late seventies. But it is an incredible uh, car, just in terms of its power, in terms of its the speeds that they started getting as they crept up through the seventies. Because obviously, it wasn't that long ago before then that they didn't choose the aerodynamics for the first time. Um, mm, absolutely. So it's just I mean, you've, got, you've got to feel sorry for for Renault in terms of that they brought in the turbo, but it wasn't them that developed albeit the original initial cars were very successful like they weren't the ones that then pioneered it to the point of domination in a similar way that um ground effect was the same thing it was lotus pioneered it to domination but they didn't initially invent it from what i remember mm, correct um but that was again because they were kind of shortcutting uh, short too much renault's issue was that they just couldn't make the car reliable enough and they kept on pushing for power and the bloody things blew up, and there was just too much internal politics going on uh, within that team to sort it out. Mm. Lotus 78, I know everyone loves the Lotus 78, but to me, uh, it's a crap car. It just happened to have ground effects on it, so it could go much quicker than everyone else's. But it had so much porpoising, the chassis flexed on it, it was just too soft a car uh, to develop from. And um, the for me, the Williams FW07 was the Lotus 78 sorted out and that was why they made that car so so dominant um, because they knew what the engine could do um, they realized what the 78's weakness was and just went well we'll make sure our car doesn't do that and boom they had a car which they could use in 1979 1980 and 1981 and win in those three years as well very well said however Sam Yes, you've been very quiet this podcast <laughs> um, because been yeah. Now um, you've got a car which some viewers might have heard of before. Can't you know? Not many, but it's it's a bit more famous than the Renault RS10. If we if we're being honest, 
everyone everyone will know this car. You will have seen it, even if you don't know what it's called. Because it is the Lotus 72. And it's probably the best Formula 1 car of the 70s. What's a Lotus 72? It's Never heard a flat-nosed, aerodynamic, gold-leaf... Or JPS. ...then JPS sponsored. Yeah. Lotus Formula One car. No, nah, it's clearly not that famous because I don't know. <laughs> never, oh, heard, yeah. never heard of those sponsors. Yeah. You've never heard of heard of uh, no, no, JPS no. Lotus. <laughs> nah, not a clue. Not a clue. Sorry, Sam. Go on. <laughs> so, Monty was saying how um, how the the Williams there was successful in three three seasons of Formula One. <laughs> this was successful in five. Um, it was raced from seventy to seventy five. It won three championships in that time, two drivers' championships as well. Jochen Rint in 1970, and Emerson Fittipaldi in 72, and then the Constructors in 70, 72, and 73. It did 75 races, 20 of which it won, had 39 podiums in that time. That's incredible. And it was kind of the, the benchmark, really, let's face it. The reason I say that's incredible... The reason I say that's incredible is because when you, I was saying earlier with my uh, Mazda engine car, the Sigma, reliability really wasn't that good back in the 70s. Like, to get 39 no. podiums, you know, basically half a podium on half of your races back then, that is, that's, that's game, there's, that's, that's, mm. that's a good reason why you're going to win. Um, if you're, if you've got that kind of reliability, which, especially for a Lotus, you don't exactly associate the two words reliability and Lotus. They, don't, they go together. No, exactly. they, they go together a bit like cheese and something that doesn't go with cheese. Uh, whipped cream. There you go. Yeah. That's the best way I can think of, Chris. I was on the spot. I put myself on the spot. <laughs> carry, carry on, um, But, uh, yeah, well, no, it is very true. I mean, Colin Chapman famously said he designed his cars to do the length of the race and nothing more. Yeah. Uh, whereas this actually was pretty much bulletproof. It had the Cosworth DFV engine in the back, which made between 440 and 465 brake horsepower, depending on how high you revved it. And it revved 10,800 RPM, um, which is ridiculous as well. Um, five speed gearbox, fairly standard for the time, really. Um, I just think when you, even now, you see one of these cars and you go, Fwah, look at that, Formula One car, that's incredible. You don't know, that's the thing, it you don't say Formula One car, you go, that's a Lotus. Well, yeah, that, yeah, exactly, yeah, it, it, it made the brand. That JPS colour scheme, which has become so iconic, this was the first car to carry that in, what, in Formula One at the very least. Hmm. Um, and it was... Just yeah, some of the drivers: Jackie Ix, Ronnie Peterson, Emerson Fittipaldi, Jochen Rint. Didn't just... give Mario Andretti's first start, or was and, that just yeah, Andretti. I'm pretty sure he drove. Yeah, he did drive one of these later on. It was sort of further down the line. Um, but I mean, sure it was that. still. Or was it? Did he drive the? I think he drove. He drove seventy eight. I think he, 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 he drove the seventy six oh. onwards. Uh, he did drive the Lotus forty nine in the sixties. He got his debut with that. Hang on, I'm just going to look on Andretti's profile. While Monty's doing that, this is what what I was shocked when I read the stats on Monty's car. 
When Sam said the power of this car is between 440 and 465 horsepower, that's less than a third of what the Renault and the BMW were getting, you know, literally only five years later. Mm. Yeah. Huge um, development. But because of the the way it was built and how light it was and, and the aerodynamics on it as well, which at the time, when you think about 1970, a lot of the cars still looked more like the 60s cars hmm. that we think oh, of. The Sigarnos with sort of bolt-on wings. And then you look at this in 1970, and it looks a lot more modern. As much as yeah. anything, it looks like it's been designed to have those wings there i mean just just, 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 just having side pods as well i mean that's something that wasn't around in the 60s that much yeah exactly yeah well they all had an, an opening on the front didn't they for their yeah. radiators whereas this mm. had proper side pods it no, had a top mounted airbox wings it had the rear wings it was a modern formula one car yeah the, the, the it took about three years before any other team started making their cars look remotely like the 72 because going into 71 and 72 they all look cigar shaped as well mm -hmm. i think the first yeah. one probably was the mclaren m23 in 73 and oh god what's his face chris amon he did his own car in 74 those were the only two which looked remotely like the lotus 72 in that period everything else just looked like that cigar shape from the 60s with as sam says wings bolted onto it or they did that kind of bumper nose shape including tyrrell and ferrari and brm and that didn't they they yeah did they did a lot of that where it was kind of not really downforce it was just less drag just yeah. covering the front of the car to reduce the drag a bit um yeah. But uh, no, there's one other thing, Sam, really... which I think we need to mention oh. for the 70s is that also something that's, that wasn't around in the 60s and is in the 70s slick tyres. Yes, yeah. Didn't exist one until was... 1971. No. Yep, but it, that's the uh, thing as well. 1970. One on uh, group tyres. Um, I say, was it slicks in 70? I thought slick tyres were introduced to Formula One by Firestone at the 1971 Spanish Grand Prix. By Firestone in the 1971. However, Jackie Stewart won the 1970 Spanish Grand Prix using Dunlop slick tyres. Ah, there you go. Oh, okay. Everyone else was still using Grooved until 1971, but uh, the March cars were using Dunlop slicks in 70. They were the only team to do so. Fair enough. Well, you know. Well, this car won on both. Yes. Yeah, it was a versatile car. <clears throat> really was because it, it raced for what five seasons? Yeah, yeah, five seasons. Yeah, from I mean, 70 by seventy-five, it, it wasn't a race winner anymore, obviously, but it was no, still it was, scoring points, which it, was impressive. It was outdated by that point, really. But I mean, after five years, can you really blame it as much as anything? The fact right. is, the fact it still finishes fourth overall in nineteen seventy-four is yeah, pretty incredible. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. No, that, that, that's really, really impressive. I'm I'll just looking it. at pace difference here, by the way. You know, uh, Sean was talking about uh, like for, for three times power from the Renault, from the mm -hmm. Lotus 72. Just to, as a fun fact here as to how much the cars have developed in this decade. So Emerson Fittipaldi in Monza 1972 put in a time of 136.29 uh, for his qualifying lap. For 1979, Jean-Pierre Jabouy uh, put in a 134.5. Doesn't sound a lot, two seconds different. But bearing in mind, in 1972, there was a little kink.
for the first chicane. The second chicane didn't exist and Ascari barely existed by then, whereas by 79, the layout of Monza's how we would know it more so today with the really tight chicanes. The wow. second chicane was there and Ascari was there. So the Renault was still two seconds quicker, even though it had to deal with three chicanes that compared is... to the 72, mm. which was spanking everyone else's asses in that era as well. That's it incredible. just shows how quickly um, things develop. It does. I mean, yeah. That's a, my time has stopped, but it's not gone blur. But anyway, um, <laughs> so <laughs> we've actually managed to get an extra minute or so. But no, I mean the seventies. We said this with the sixties that we're starting to get some modern cars. Um, the seventies. These are sort of the first gens of what we would call we would recognise today with mo a lot of modern technology, a lot of modern uh, power and practice num uh, practices. Um, yeah, all, all of these cars in their own way had their their own um, stories to tell. In, in the sense of they could, they they all set, set set trends which would go on for the next twenty years or more. Um, some even longer than that. But it's uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely cause this is this was good. I enjoyed this one. It was a revolutionary decade. It definitely was. Uh, it was. Uh, we follow there. it with the endless quest for power. We do. That's the, yeah. That is that will be the eighties. Hundred percent. Oh, there we are. Uh, before then, we've got Big the road run. cars, which um, well, you know how they always say that race cars uh, <laughs> have trickle down economics in terms of their 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 uh, technologies. Um, yeah, for, for those looking forward to the next episode. Eh, it won't be as good as this one. <laughs> we'll make it. Seven, Seventy. I hate seventies road cars. They're so awful. They're all boxes and they're all, ugh. Anyway, I don't know. We've got a fairly nice selection of seventies road cars. Uh, apart from Monty, who hasn't nominated one yet. Yeah, I'm still trying to think of one which I actually like from that decade. There you go. Okay, I'll take some inspiration from Cree because he's no doubt got something Japanese inspired. Hmm. Yes. I can't remember what mine is, but I don't care what you think because my car is the best. Two He's Spoiler. got the other car that BRE <laughs> exactly. entered into the Trans Am Championship. Exactly. But, so, but that, know, well, that there will... are some fantastic cars. You just need to look properly. That'll be till next time. Um, thank you very much to Sam, Al, Monty, and Cree uh, for joining me. Pleasure, as always, is all yours, my good friends. You know it. That's all right. Um, time, Sean. Yep, yep, yep. Um, Cree, I believe you got to go and watch some rugby, so uh, we shall let you go it's not the end of the world <laughs> thank you very much for listening uh, follow us on social media at Stelvio Auto um, we'll, take, we'll see you next time take care and goodbye bye bye bye, bye.